kind of, kind of person who enjoys a song service where you're kind of always on your toes, never knowing what to expect. You came to the right place. Wonderful songs, though. It's, I personally like when you sing old songs in the traditional and old way, but I also like when you sing old songs in a little bit more modern way, and that song falls into that category where it's a timeless song that so many people know. The sad thing about that song in many ways is that it's probably the best-known, quote, Christian song in all of in our country, in our entire country, possibly the entire world. And unfortunately, there's many people who sing that song every Sunday. And as I've touched on before, singing those songs without understanding the words, without understanding what grace actually is, that grace is God doing for people what they do not deserve and what they cannot do for themselves. There's really two aspects to grace there. And so often as people sing that song and they sing it throughout their entire life, they never once are introduced to who Jesus is and what he's done or the real meaning of the word grace, what grace actually means. It means giving up of self. It means abandoning self-help and self-effort. It means abandoning human or man's attempts to reach God on their terms and coming to God on his terms. But he says, the only way you can come to me is by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, as I offer you a free gift that needs to be freely given and freely received. Your only part in this is to receive or accept by putting your confidence, your trust, your faith, being convinced to or persuaded to accept as true what I've said about my solution for your sinfulness, admitting that you have nothing to offer me, no matter how much you would try or how, what kind of self-improvement plan you would subscribe to, you would ultimately fall short of my glory. And my standard is not okay or better than most. My standard is perfect righteousness. And if you want to be where I am, and if I'm in a place of pure holiness, then you're going to have to be perfect. And of course, the point of all that was that mankind, in hearing that, wouldn't put any confidence in himself. He would see, I'm lost. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. I'm on my way to an eternity spent apart from where he is because I could never measure up to that. And that's precisely the case. That's absolutely true. But God in his love, though he's holy, he said, I love you so much, I don't want to leave you estranged from me. I don't want to leave you in a place where you're distant from me and have to spend all of eternity apart from me in the place where I'm not, the lake of fire. I want to make a way of rescue. I want to make a way for you to be where I am. And of course, we understand here in this church, and we teach it regularly, most Christians think they understand this, but they don't, that Christ was the one who made a way. But he, waited, he made a way not by improving on our efforts, but by throwing us out of the equation altogether. He made a way by doing everything for us that needed to be done. So he said, I see you with a debt, a bill of debt, a certificate of debt, a writ of debt that's written against you, that stands against you. And the debt that you owe is not a small debt, it's a debt of death, eternal separation from me. But I'm going to pay that price. I'm going to pay that debt for you. I'm going to become sin for you even though I've never known any sin. I'm going to die in your place. You know, we were reading, I was reading in devotions with my kids last night, these pictures in the Old Testament, you have many of them, where mankind was forced to recognize that he was a sinner and that there would have to be the innocent that would be sacrificed in the place of the guilty. 
And that without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sins. As throughout the Old Testament, there were symbols and pictures that were pointing us to the perfect spotless Lamb of God who was Jesus, who would one day shed his blood in the place of all of the guilty once and for all, the final payment for all man's sin. But in the Old Testament, many pictures where man would, mankind was repeatedly asked to be reminded that he was a sinner and that something innocent, an innocent would have to take the place of the guilty. Otherwise, he himself would have to pay that debt. And so as they brought those lambs to be sacrificed time and time again, I guess it wasn't, this is very, a little dark, uh, but I wasn't, I hadn't remembered this fact. But as they brought those spotless lambs without blemish, to be sacrificed as an atonement for their sins, to remind them that the innocent would have to die in the place of the guilty. As they did it, it wasn't the priests who slit the throat of those lambs and killed those lambs. It was them who did that. They did that as a picture that it's actually me who made him have to die on the cross. It was for me that he had to go to Calvary. It wasn't for someone else. As he, as he shed his blood, it was me that caused that to be necessary. Now granted, also true of every other member of the human race, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. All of our works of righteousness are filthy rags. All true, but that will never help you get saved. The only thing that will ever get, help you get saved is to recognize it was me and it was my sins that Jesus Christ had to die for. Now when he died in my place and he shed his blood in my place, he didn't do it again to finish up what I started. He once and for all completely accomplished what was necessary by shedding his blood and paying the debt that I owed. There was nothing left for me to do other than accept as a free gift his sacrifice in my place. How do I do that? I believe it. I put my trust in it. I put all my eggs in the basket of believing in his death, burial, and resurrection for me. And the moment you decide to quit trusting in your human efforts, your religious efforts, something else or someone else beside him, and put all of your confidence in what he's done for you that moment, you can truly understand what amazing grace is all about. You now have the capacity to understand what God's love was all about. That saved a wretch like me. It starts with recognizing I am a wretch and recognizing that it's God's grace, his unmerited favor directed towards me, an undeserving sinner, that made it possible for me to be rescued from the penalty of my sin. Now, the moment you understand that, the Bible says you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, that you're sealed into God's family, that he'll never let you go, that you become a child of God. And that's why John and 1 John can say, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we could be called sons of God. You can go through life knowing he's my Father, he's watching out for me, he'll never leave me or forsake me, he's provided for every single need that I have, both in time, in the physical realm, in the spiritual realm, and eternally he's gone to prepare a place for me. And one day he said he'll come to gather me, he'll come to get me, he'll come to call me up so that I could go to be with him either through death, death or the rapture. And that I'll spend all of eternity with him. And that's something to celebrate. That's something to look forward to. Because of that understanding that God is control both of my present and my future, I can experience God's peace. I can experience God's rest in a way that those who do not know him never will. So amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, 
but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And I love how that last verse goes in this version of it because it's not in most hymnals. The world will soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. The Christian doesn't have to go through life being upset, being on edge, being worried about the future. Perfect love casts out fear as we think the real context of that is the idea that knowing that God is in control, I know that he is in control not just now but for all of eternity. I know that anything that's happening he's allowing to happen and that his plan is going to come to fruition regardless of kings, regardless of nations, regardless of people. That nothing will thwart God's plan for eternity and that I'm a part of that plan for eternity so I can rest knowing that he's going to provide for me. Well, no, that wasn't the sermon for this morning. That was just an extra. That's bonus material. We just tossed that in. We'll have a word of prayer here. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your love. Thank you for this opportunity to gather as a family of faith. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you have a plan. Thank you that in your plan you included a means to rescue the human race that you made a way for us to be with you, not just here in time, but for all of eternity. Pray that we wouldn't squander either, that we wouldn't forget about the eternal future that is waiting us, but that at the same time we wouldn't forget about the opportunity we have to live in close fellowship with you, that we can have intimacy with you in a day-by-day, moment-by-moment perspective here in this life. Pray that we wouldn't just waste this life or watch it waste away, thinking about the future or doing our own thing, but we would redeem the time while the day is today. That we wouldn't watch these days drift away. Pray that we would want to live and operate in the realm of truth, the realm of love, that, that would, we would want your way of living, your characteristics to describe our lives so that our lives could bring you honor and glory. Pray that you'd be glorified by everything that is said and done here this morning. Pray that you'd give me wisdom and clarity and accuracy as I speak. Pray that it would be beneficial to everyone who's here. Pray that you would be lifted up again by all that we say and do. To God be the glory, great things he has done. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of this morning's sermon is Living in Truth and Love. Living in Truth and Love. Now, when you think of this word living, you have to start with this word walking. And the word walking in the New Testament, we'll see it in our text this morning, but walking in the New Testament refers to the totality of your manner of living. And so there's lots of examples of biblical instructions to live in a certain way so that your manner of living would be described or characterized by certain descriptors. And some of the examples you can find in the Word of God we're going to see today, which is walk in love, walk in truth, but you have walk in light, walk in the Spirit. There's different examples you can find of have your manner of living characterized by these things, either things in general or attributes of God himself, which most of them are attributes of God himself when you think about truth, love, and light. These are the very character of God being described through words. And so walk in or have your manner of living characterized by these things. So by replacing walking with living, it communicates the underlying idea effectively. A lot of people can see the emphasis there a little bit more. You're walking that is referring to this manner of going through life. So, to make it even more simple, live in truth or live in love. 
And that's where our title comes from, Living in Truth and Living in Love, which will be brought out by John here in this passage that we look at. You see, manner of living is really referring to the characteristics of your life. And the Christian's life should be characterized by the attributes of, or qualities of God himself. And that's the logical result. Now really just think about that. Why wouldn't, if I'm a Christ one being led and directed by God's Spirit, when that's true in my life, wouldn't my life be characterized by the very attributes or qualities of God himself? The characteristics of God would be the characteristics of me, become the characteristics of me as I become more like him. And as his Spirit is working in my life, The fruit that the Spirit of God is going to produce in my life is going to be actions, it's going to be deeds, it's going to be words, it's going to be thinking that's consistent with Him, consistent with how He sees things, how He thinks about things, consistent with how He would speak, the words that He would say, the things that He would do, the actions that He would undertake, the priorities that He would make. And as He is reflected in me, then I become more and more like Him. But that's the goal for every Christian is that we would mature over time to be conformed or transformed into the image of God instead of the alternative. And what's the alternative? Because there's no middle ground in Christianity. I'm either being conformed or transformed into the image of Jesus Christ to be more like him or I'm being conformed into what? Conformed to the world. And that's why Paul has to say, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind to be, the idea there, be more like him, to think more like him, to have him being reflected in your life to a greater and greater extent. Now, is that because of you? Not specifically, although you have to make choices. Choices to respond volitionally, have this positive volitional response to what the Spirit of God is seeking to do in your life every moment of every day. You have choices. George Jones sang a country song said, I've had choices since the day that I was born. There were voices told me right from wrong. If I had listened, no, I wouldn't be here today. Living and dying with the choices I've made. Now, you know, you could look that song up. You know, I'm not saying it's a great tune. But there's choices. God doesn't make us choose to have a positive volitional response to him, to let him have his way. He doesn't, he doesn't force us to seek after him, to submit to him, to yield to him, to draw nearer to him, to seek out his word, to read his word, to communicate with him in prayer. He doesn't make us do any of those things. Now, if it weren't for the power of the Spirit of God working in us, we'd have no capacity for those things. It's true that it's God that works in us both the will and to do of his good pleasure. But God isn't a puppet master who's forcing us to make choices that are going to contribute to our spiritual well-being. He doesn't force us to include him in our lives. And so, as you're considering the options, one is to be conformed to the world around you. That involves choices. It involves choices of drawing nearer to the thinking and the things of the world instead of choices that involve drawing nearer to Him. Drawing nearer to eternal perspective, to divine perspective, to filling my mind with His truth. 
to fellowshipping with other believers, Lord willing, when we're in fellowship around the things of truth so that we can be built up, edified, and encouraged with the things of truth. As that's true, then I'm conformed into the image of Jesus Christ instead of the alternative, which is that as I see the baubles of the world, the shiny lights and the flashing lights of the world, I'm drawn like a fly to a bug zapper to the world. And as I draw nearer to the world, then naturally my thinking becomes impacted by the world's thinking. As my thinking becomes impacted by the world's thinking, the way my manner of living becomes impacted by the world and the world's manner of living. It's just common sense that I spill what I'm filled with. So if I fill myself up with garbage, what comes out of me is garbage. You know, we've been trying to teach our children that as it refers to the things that they eat, their diet. The reality is that you're not going to thrive even physically if you only input junk food into your diet. That's just common sense. Now, it's real hard because setting aside those Cheetos in favor of rice cakes... That's a challenge. My poor wife would have these kids in perfect alignment if it wasn't for their dad. I'm not much of an example. But when we're thinking about these qualities and these characteristics and these attributes, it's natural or it's logical to to see that if God is my focus, if I'm drawing nearer to him, if I'm experiencing intimacy with him and his spirit is leading, directing in my life then the qualities and characteristics that would make up my manner of living are going to be the kinds of qualities and characteristics that are true of God himself. So last week we observed two inseparable qualities of God, things that should never be apart because God never is split up into pieces. God is always uniquely one and all of his qualities and attributes, they work together, they mesh together, they balance each other. So God is never divided. All of those qualities are true at the exact same moment all of the time with him. And so two of the qualities of him were truth, we saw, and love. And we noted that they should go together, especially as it applies to our lives. God's desire would be that truth would go with love and love would go with truth and they wouldn't be separated. And John's going to get to the application of that principle in the verses that we're going to get into next time. But for now, he wants to bring out that those two qualities that are true of God himself, these two things should describe your manner of living. So he's going to exhort these believers to live in both. They go together, so live in both. And have both describe your life. So live or walk in truth or live and walk in love are the two things that we're going to take a closer look at here this morning. If you haven't turned there already, we're in Second John. We're going to pick up in verse 4. Verse 4 says, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. So verses 1 through 3 were the introduction to this short letter. Verse 4 here picks up the body or the heart of the letter. And John's going to begin with a word of praise and identify a specific cause for celebration. You see the celebration there with the words rejoiced greatly. I rejoiced greatly. Now what brought that about? What was the cause of that celebration? I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. 
a cause for celebration, a cause for commendation or praise to, and as I, I said, my view was that this is in reference to a local church, some of the members of the local church that Paul had come into contact with. Now, again, it doesn't matter whether that's true or he's talking about literally running into some of the children of a lady that apparently has a bunch of children that he's now writing a letter to. Either way, he's writing to somebody who's he's come into contact with their associates, whether it's literal children or it's children in the faith, brothers and sisters in Christ, members of the local, a local congregation. Either way, John came into contact with these individuals and he was overjoyed to find that they were walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. So when we look at this first phrase, I rejoiced greatly. This aorist passive verb, it carries the idea of I was made to rejoice. This was a cause for celebration. I was made to rejoice or it, it, I was caused to celebrate when I came across this realization or I noticed this or experienced this by coming across your children. And so then there's this word greatly. Now he could have just said, I rejoice that I have found some of your children walking in truth, but he includes this adverb greatly to enhance the strength of the described emotion. He's saying, I wasn't just a little bit happy or or I didn't find a little bit of joy in this, but I had the greatest possible joy in finding that some of your children were walking in truth. And you think about that from both perspectives. From the perspective of a, of a parent, could there be any greater joy possible for a Christian parent? Or I might, maybe I should say, should there be any greater joy for a Christian parent than to have somebody else come across your children and observe that they're walking in truth, that they're living in truth, that their manner of life is characterized by God's truth, by the sphere of truth that is made up with God's truth as communicated through his word, through, in this context, the teaching of Christ himself, which was then recorded in God's word, but they didn't have the completed canon of scripture. For them, it would have been Old Testament scriptures. It would have been the letters that had already been written by the Apostle Paul, so apostolic teaching. It would have also been the teaching of Jesus that was told from one person to the next and so forth until it was all accumulated together into the canon of scripture or the New Testament. Point being, as they responded to that truth, their manner of living was characterized by God's truth. What a great statement. And from a church perspective, is there anything that should cause you a greater or or should be a greater cause for celebration in a local family of church than to have others report back or run into our brothers and sisters here, part of our family here, and say, I see that I was rejoiced or I celebrated that I could come across or spend some time with so-and-so who's a part of your family and to see that they were walking in truth, that their manner of living was characterized by God's truth. Then maybe you've experienced that before where sometimes it was directly, sometimes it was indirectly. For me, sometimes it's directly. Somebody will say, I'll meet somebody from another body of believers somewhere else and they'll say something to me along the lines of, yeah, I, I met Sean while I was down in Arizona while we were doing some fair evangelism or some surveying, presenting the gospel to people. I, I met somebody from your church, Sean. You know, that could, that could happen. And I'm not making this up, but you, when they speak of Sean, they're glad to have met him, that he's a part of that missionary team. 
evangelizing and sharing the gospel with people who are lost. But the alternative can be true too where you have some feedback or you meet somebody who's met somebody from our family and they're, they don't, what they say about that person isn't a cause for celebration. They say, oh, you go to that church? Is that the same church that so-and-so goes to? And you say, yeah. And they say, that son of a gun robbed me, cheated me, stole from me, stabbed me in the back, is, never works on the job, is the laziest person I ever met. Can that be true too? Yeah, I've heard people say, I would never go to that church. If so-and-so goes to that church, I would never go to that church. So our testimony matters, right? We don't pump out the Christian life or a Christian manner of living through our own strength, and we'll get into that in a second. But how we act, how we live, how we conduct ourselves in the world, it matters. And it affects, it affects people, too. Now, sometimes you can have something negative said about a fellow brother or sister in this church, and you could smile and rejoice greatly, even though it was something negative. And here's, a, here's the kind of negative thing you want to hear about your fellow believers here in church. Hey, uh, that you tell them, where do you go to church? Go to Heritage Trail Bible Church. Oh, is that the same church that so-and-so goes to? Yeah. Man, that guy never shuts up about Jesus. He's always talking all the time about Jesus. Guy drives me batty because all he ever wants to talk about is the Word of God. And I've heard that before too. I wish I had heard that more often than I'd heard some of the other things, right? But couldn't that be all of our testimony? We're, we're a living vessel, a living instrument. We're a, a billboard, a walking billboard for Jesus Christ. That, that ought to be the case. So in any event, it could be either, but... Regardless of whether it's talking about actual children or local church members that are having a favorable, had a favorable interaction with John somewhere, such that he could rejoice greatly, what a great, what a, what a proper reason to rejoice. No matter which it is, that's something to celebrate. Think of all the goofy things we celebrate that have no lasting value. But this is something that's actually worth celebrating. And you see John speak of this again in 3 John, chapter, verses 3 through 4. There's no chapters in these short letters. But he says this in 3 John. We'll get to this, Lord willing, sometime in the future. But for I rejoiced greatly, same language, when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. Just as you walk in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And this is actually part of why I believe this is writing about a church congregational, that that's the setting of this context. Because John is referring to other believers that he has led to the Lord or who he's influenced as his children. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in, in truth. And he used that kind of language in 1 John 2 as he referred to them as little children many times over. And so when you're talking about children, there's this idea that perhaps that's a continuation of that flow of thinking, and it's again in reference to local church. But let's come back to your own personal children. Some of them are sitting with you. Some of them are in Sunday school. Some of them are grown, and they're long gone. They live in other parts of the country. But I rejoice greatly, or I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Is that your 
greatest desire for your children, that they would walk in truth? When you're being honest, is that the thing that you're actually praying for or hoping for in their lives? You see, we're slowly brainwashed in the world by the thinking of the world. We're not, we're not immune to it. We, we can't escape this idea that the world promotes that success looks a certain way. Success or being a good parent, it looks like your children achieving or accomplishing certain things. And so is it true that your greatest joy is seeing your children walk in truth? Or is the greatest joy that you're getting in raising your children watching them score touchdowns? Seeing them be recognized on the honor roll. If they're older, seeing them go through some kind of schooling and get some sort of credentials and letters after their name. Seeing them get a really fancy house or be financially independent. Watching them get that perfect job or find a mate that seems compatible to them without any reference to the spiritual aspects of that. Watching them have healthy children so you have healthy grandchildren. What is really bringing you joy as a parent? What are the things that you're really celebrating? And too often, that's the hole that we get sucked into because though we're not of this world, we're living in this world and the world's way of prioritizing things, the world's way of celebrating things become our way of celebrating things. And, and friends, I'm no, I'm no different. I'm just as susceptible to that as anyone. I'd be absolutely lying if I didn't say I had a strong sense of joy and celebration in watching my daughter or my son succeed on the athletic fields or in a swimming pool or in whatever it is they're doing. There's a sense of pride when I get their standardized testing back and I see that they're doing better than most. Now, pray to God that I would have the same kind of joy or desire, but hopefully a much greater joy to see them respond to God's truth, to see them have a heart for the Lord. I think we get into routines where we just pray it we, we, we know that we should be praying for that, but it's so routine, it's just a habit form kind of a prayer that we just pump out over and over again that we're not actually really focused and obsessing and meditating on whether or not our children have hearts for the Lord. We pray for it, but are we really thinking about it? Are we really meditating on that in the moment that we're praying? And are we just doing that so we can feel like we've checked off that box when in reality the things we're really concerned about with our children have little to do with their spiritual well-being. Something to think about for sure because John gives us an example here where he says, there's nothing that gives me greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, he talks about the next phrase here is, I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children. I found some of your children and then he's going to say walking in truth. But I found some of your children. So John now reveals the underlying cause of his exceeding joy. He says, I found, and I found fails to communicate any specific details beyond that this occurred in the past through some unrevealed means. He doesn't tell us what did he experience 
in them? What was the interaction like? How did he come to this conclusion that these particular children were walking in truth? He doesn't tell us that. The language is that of unintentional discovery, though, and I want to make that clear. He didn't examine or intentionally search out these children to find out how they were doing spiritually. It doesn't carry that idea, that he subjected them to some scrutiny, and he then concluded that they were walking in truth. No, as a just coming alongside of them and living life with them, he observed in that time that they were walking in truth, and it caused him to have abundant or great joy. Now you have this word some though. I found some of your children and some could indicate the reality that at any given time there are those responding to the Lord and there are those who are not. But more likely it simply refers to the reality that John only encountered some part of the congregation, the church congregation. He ran into a few of the individuals. So when he says, I found some of them walking in truth, it's not like he had interactions with the entire church body, he came across, in all likelihood, I can't be dogmatic about this, he came across certain individuals from that church body, and as he writes to the whole church, he's saying, I found some of them walking in in truth because those are the ones that he came across. But that being said, it is absolutely a fixed reality that in your home and in your family, in this church family, there are those that are presently, as their present manner of living, keeping their eyes vertical, focusing on the Lord and what He wants to do in their lives, allowing God's Spirit to work in them, and they're walking in truth. But the reality is that at any moment within any day, you could be walking in truth and then walking in your own wisdom. Leaning on your own understanding. Trusting in your own intellect being directed by the thinking of the world around you in the same day, in the same hour, perhaps even in the same minute where you go from, I'm walking in truth, I'm being directed by God's truth to whammo, something or else, some, something happens and you have a choice. Am I going to respond in faith or am I going to react in my flesh? And how sad is that, that you go from enjoying the Lord, walking in His truth, really living, to being derailed just like that. And now all of a sudden you're leaning on your own understandings, you're walking with a horizontal perspective, your gaze has shifted from vertical things to horizontal things, you're now trusting yourself, you're now being consumed by your circumstances, and you're not looking to Him. Well, that can happen at any moment in any day for any person within any family. And that's an observation that you have to be on guard. That's the takeaway from that. Be on guard. That can happen to anyone. But John is communicating his abundant joy here, so I don't think he's communicating his abundant joy by then souring that tone of celebration by saying there was by trying to say there were some that weren't and there were some that were i think he's just referring to i came across a couple of members of this family and i'm celebrating because they were walking in truth now when we think about walking in truth this is the first part of our sermon title we have living in truth and love so we substitute living for walking and we have living in truth And this is the observation John made, which brought him great joy. I observed that they were living in truth, and that brought me tremendous joy. I rejoiced greatly to see that. 
and you're thinking about running into fellow believers in some alternative place, as you run into somebody where you weren't expecting them, it might even just be in town, you run into a fellow believer at the grocery store. In my case, I often run into some of you at the Caribou Coffee when I'm there working on my messages. But when you run into another believer, isn't just that in and of itself a cause for joy or a cause for celebration? Isn't that fun? When you run into somebody, let's just say it's not a believer, run into somebody that you know. That's kind of fun usually, more often than not. If it's somebody you don't like, you probably dodged them somehow or saw them coming. But if you run into somebody that you like, it's, that's fun, it's joyful. Run into a fellow believer should be even better, right? Just that by itself. But run into a believer who's presently walking in truth, now that's cause for great joy, for great celebration. It's like icing on the cake unless you don't like frosting. And then you should probably leave because you're something wrong with you. (laughs) Icing on the cake. But we already observed that walking refers to a manner of living, the totality of your life patterns. If you think about everything that makes up your way of living, your way of thinking, your way of behaving falls into that as secondary to your way of thinking. Now, your way of behaving involves your actions. It also involves your words too, though. So your words and your deeds. And so if those are characterized by walking in truth or living in truth, that's a positive thing. So it's a present tense active voice here. So we're talking about action that is in progress or it represents a present state of being. So John, he says, I found and I'm confident they continue to do this. I found some of your children walking or living in the truth. And if they're living in the truth and it's active voice, they're choosing, they're having a positive volitional response to the Lord at that present point in time where they're looking vertically, they're inclining their thinking to Him, and He's impacting that behavior and the actions that come from it such that they can be observed by John. Now remember, John can't observe their internal faith walk. He can't He can't observe what's going on inside of them. He can only observe what is externally manifest in them. So while it's true that God is primarily focused on the heart, man can't see your heart. Man observe your testimony or your external witness of your internal faith. So if you are enjoying the Lord, it should be obvious. It normally is. Because the things that you say and the things that you do then are impacted by the way that you're thinking. And if you're enjoying him, others can see that in you. You can be a light to them. The light that they see isn't the light that's inside of you. It's the light that's flowing from you as God is working in and through you. And so you have this idea of walking or having your manner of living characterized by, in this case, truth. But the same thing is true with our other examples from our introduction about walking in the light as he is in the light. Walking in love or walking by means of the Spirit. It's characterizing your present manner of living. But here we have truth. And it refers to a general sphere of existence. So you're existing in, your life is characterized by existing in this sphere of truth. Now in contrast to living in the realm of or under the influence of what is false, because you can also be existing or living life in error. And that's going to come up here in the next section of this letter. That's going to be the contrast. 
So you don't want to exist in the realm of error. You want to exist or live in the realm of truth. And that truth is quantified by specific, known and defined Christian beliefs. It's not some ambiguous thing. It's also a reflection or it refers to fellowship with the Father. So when I'm existing or living in the realm of truth, I'm living in fellowship with Him. That's to live in the realm of truth is to live near Him, be drawing near to Him, be leaning into Him, be experiencing that intimacy with Him. If He is the truth, then I'm walking or living in the truth when I'm living with Him. But beyond that, truth can be quantified. God's truth is revealed. God didn't just hide His truth and keep it to Himself. He revealed it through His Word. And we have His Word in front of us. It can be quantified. It can be determined. And in their specific context, it was quantified by Old Testament scriptures, by the teaching of Jesus, and as I said earlier, apostolic, including the teaching of the apostle John here. But the, the body of doctrines by which Christians are to live their lives, they're known. They're not hidden. See, God had, he said, I am the truth. He then said, I want to reveal myself to you. How did he do that? He revealed the truth to us. He revealed the truth to us in his word with an idea that then his truth could guide us through life with, along with the guiding or the influencing or the direction of the Spirit of God. So as the Spirit of truth works with the Word of truth in our lives, then our lives can be characterized as existing in this realm of truth at any present moment in time. Our state of being can be characterized by walking in the truth of God Himself. Now, I will say this. This is clearly an important theme of this book because this is the fourth time truth is mentioned in four verses. See, John is setting up this coming contrast with what is false by putting a focus on what is true. Now, another thing I want to bring out as we talk about living in the truth is that there is no living in the truth apart from discerning what is true. Now, yes, there is in the context of the secondary application there, which may be the primary application here, but two applications. One is living in or under the influence of what is true, but the other is living in intimacy with the one who is true. The influence of what has been revealed to be true or in intimacy or closeness with the one who is true. But if we're talking about now being influenced by what has been revealed to be true, there's no way to be influenced by what has been revealed to be true apart from being able to Study it, meditate on it, and learn it. You'll never discern what is truth unless you know what is true. So how does it go? You will know the truth and then the truth will set you free. So to know the truth is to spend time in the truth. Spend time learning the truth. That's one of the reasons, Lord willing, you're here today. Hopefully you're not here out of a sense of obligation or guilt or shame. Somebody guilted you into being here. Hopefully you're here because you're interested in hearing about God's truth, being reminded about God's truth. But listen, there's not enough Sunday mornings in your lifetime for you to understand and learn all of this truth. There's no way we could ever get through it all, especially not me. Somebody else maybe. But at this pace... We're never getting through all this. And it's not, it's not up to me to, to teach all of this to, to you. The Lord uses me to, to teach whatever it is that we're going through, and we teach as much as we can. We try to faithfully spend our time in the Word of God while we're here. We spend more time in the Word of God here at this church than many churches do, but it's not enough. 
God gave his truth, revealed his truth to you with the expectation that you would know his truth, that you would be interested in his truth. In the context of a a written book, a written word of God, that involves what? Reading. Yes, it involves reading and studying God's word. You're never going to see God for who he is or understand what he wants to reveal to you if you won't invest any time in reading, studying, and meditating on his word. Now, well, is God still faithful? Yeah. Is God still going to work in your life? Yeah. Is God still going to honor whatever amount of positive response you do have to him? Yeah. But it's not going to be all that it could be. You're not going to grow like he wanted you to grow. But is, is it all going to be uh, you know, some kind of horrible thing? No. God is faithful, he's gracious, he's loving, and he'll use you right where you're at. But he does want us to develop more interest in his word and in his truth. And discerning what, truth, what is true is only going to be possible through the inworking of God's spirit working in us, the word of truth working in us, uh, the word of God working in us, and the spirit of God working in us. That's how we'll be able to then discern and identify what's true. And by knowing what's true, we'll be able to identify then what is false. So then the question becomes, there's this great celebration because John found some of these children walking in truth or living in truth. But what does that involve? What is living life, what does living in truth involve? Or how is that characterized? So a lot of times we think about where does the rubber meet the road on some of this or what does that even look like? You talk about walking or living in truth. Well, it involves living under the influence of God's truth generally. But you're never going to live under the influence of God's truth if if you're not leaning into the one who is true, and we talked about that. So apart from fellowship with God, you're never going to experience God's truth. He's not going to be able to illuminate your thinking when you're distancing yourself from him. But as you draw nearer to him and experience that intimate relationship and fellowship with him, you're going to learn more or have more truth revealed in you from God. Now, it involves dependence also on the enabling power of God's Spirit. You're not going to live in truth or have truth characterize your life if you're not living in intimacy or closeness to God himself. But it's also not going to be possible through your human effort. You're not going to make your life be characterized by God's truth. But you're going to make choices that contribute to your life being characterized by God's truth. Let me say that again. You're not going to make your life be characterized by God's truth, but you're going to make choices that contribute to or lead to an outcome where your life is characterized by God's truth. And what are those choices? Well, you're going to be looking at yourself or your circumstances or you're going to be looking at him. You're going to be drawing nearer to the world or you're going to be drawing nearer to him. You're going to be filling your mind with his truth or you're going to allow your mind to be filled with other things. You're going to prioritize the things of faith or you're going to prioritize the things of the world around you. And the cumulative effect of all of those decisions, those positive volitional responses on your part, positive or negative responses on your part, are going to lead to the outcome. Either one, you're going to be living in truth or second outcome is you're going to be walking in darkness even though you're a child of the light. Now walking in darkness, not positionally, But practically, you're going to be walking with your eyes confused and darkened as Satan has confused your thinking because you're drawing nearer to that, to him and to the thinking and the things of the world instead of to God's 
truth. Now, the other thing that is, how, how is this life characterized? It's characterized by a life that is set apart and well-pleasing to him. That's the ultimate byproduct of these other things. One, I draw nearer to him. Two, his spirit is able to work in and through me to produce a, a way of living that would otherwise be impossible. As that's true, my life is then characterized by a life that is, by being a life that is set apart or it's sanctified. It's well-pleasing to him. It's consistent with his character. And that's what John is talking about in his gospel when he says, when Jesus is, of course, he's recording Jesus, but Jesus is, is praying this to the Father, sanctify the them by your truth. Your word is truth. The truth of God has a sanctifying effect on our lives. It sets us apart. As we respond to his truth, then our lives are characterized by things that are absolutely inconsistent with the way that the world does things. And so that's the prayer of Jesus himself. Now it says, I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. Now, you just say, just as the Father commanded. You see, the truth in which believers walk or live is direct, directed by revelation from God. John does not define the nature of the commandment, but clearly both truth and love were reflected in their conduct or manner of living. He doesn't say what kinds of truth I could find or see or observe in them, but clearly it was truth and love because those are some of the things that John is talking about here or focusing on here in this letter, and it's going to be further defined here in verses 5 and 6. But the truth that we walk in is the truth that the Spirit of God leads us in and the truth that was revealed in God's Word. Now we move to verse 5, and now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. John now transitions to an exhortation or appeal for continuing down the road of truth and love versus falling for the deception of the false teachers, which he's going to get into in verses 7 through 11. He's saying, continue down this road of truth and love. Have that characterize your manner of living. And he says, I now plead with you that we love one another. So these two things, again, are connected. They can't be separated. Now, I'm rearranging that when I say I now plead with you that we love one another because all of the middle stuff describes or adds to the rest of the main thought. The main thought is simply, though, I plead with you that we love one another. And then, not as I wrote a new commandment, and that which we have heard from the beginning, they describe this loving one another. But the sentence itself, the focus of the sentence, is simply, I plead with you that we love one another. So I've rearranged that primary thought, and that's what we're going to look at here first. And this is one example of truth that was taught repeatedly. So he started out with their walking in truth, but now he's talking about a primary example of that truth, and that's that we love one another. He uses this word, plead, and of course, this truth has been taught repeatedly. So you see the importance that Jesus placed on this as he repeatedly told them to love one another. And then it was repeated by the apostolic witness as they went about their teaching ministry, whether it was John or Paul, consistently repeated. And so when we use this word plead, it's this idea that this is very important. I have this earnest desire that you would heed this truth. And what's that truth? Well, that we love that we love. And remember, this is loving selflessly and sacrificially like God loves. And the emphasis is on the believer's manner of living here so that we walk in love. We're going to see that. 
in the next verse. So that this would characterize this walk of truth or living in truth, that one example of that would be living in love for one another, that that would be characterizing our lives. They would be descriptive of our lives. So the exhortation is to continue in this truth through practical application. Not just that we would know this truth or be aware of this truth, but that we would allow the Spirit of God to apply this truth to our everyday living. And it's not just that we would love in general, but that we would love one another, we see. That we would love one another at the end of verse 5. Now contrast this with what are the other alternatives? Human beings are wired for love. They're wired for it. But the alternative to loving one another is what? It's loving self. Right? It's loving something else besides the one another's that God has put in our lives. It's loving the world. That's what comes by default. Instead of loving the things that are noble and true and upright, speaking about those things, lifting up those things. We, we speak about and love, become infatuated with all of these other things. Most of them having no capacity for encouraging or uplifting ourselves or the others that hear it because they're not founded in God's truth. You'll never substitute proclaiming something besides God's truth and have it have the same impact that God's truth could have had. So just always a consideration before I speak, before I proclaim something, what am I going to proclaim? And what value is it going to have to the person who hears it? That is not the takeaway from that. shouldn't be I should never speak anything other than what's in the Word of God. We're going to have some funny conversations if that's the case. But just what am I emphasizing? What is the emphasis of my speech? The things that I'm communicating? What is the, what is the central theme of all that? What is the central emphasis of all that? Now, why would this need to be stated? Well, it's obvious. It's not natural. And you have to remember that this kind of love is only ever the byproduct of our love for him. And what I mean by that is, as we respond to his love, we desire to live life with him. As I see how much he loves me, then I want to live my life with him, near to him. I experience that fellowship with him. And as I desire to live life with him, then his spirit produces his kind of love in me. And that's a selfless and sacrificial love directed towards others because he's most interested and concerned with people. Now, we have this not as though I wrote a new commandment to you. John is not setting forth something new under his own authority. The theme of loving others, in fact, can be traced all the way back to the Old Testament. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, Leviticus 19.18. So this idea of loving others, not new. More of an emphasis, though, in the new testament but it's not originating with john it's originating with the teaching of jesus where he says but that which we have had from the beginning probably referring back to the beginning of christ's teaching ministry he had received john had received this command from jesus as jesus emphasized this principle in a greater way throughout his earthly ministry than what you would find necessarily 
in the Old Testament. John 13, 34 is one example of Jesus speaking. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. You can find that in many other places, in John especially. John 15, you can find that too. So John, he says that we have had this from the beginning. He uses we to unite himself with all believers who have accepted this as an original part of the continuing apostolic message. Now contrast this with heretical false teaching. He's saying this is nothing new. This is something that we've been told from the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, that we should love one another. Now contrast that with false teaching, which customarily involves offering something new. He's saying I'm not offering anything new. But false teachers generally have a new twist, a new spin, something new that they want to peddle to the people of faith. And just as an aside, you should be naturally cautious of teaching that consistently presents a new angle on God's word. Now, while new perspectives are often useful, there is a need for discernment and caution when considering something that is being presented in a new way. Now, sometimes this is exactly what we needed. So I'm not saying never accept it. I'm just saying that the nature of false teaching very often is that it always is trying to have a new angle, come up with something new. That's to attract people because it's new and novel. It's more exciting than hearing again about the things that we're struggling to allow the Spirit of God to make true in our lives anyway. So as we struggle with that, sometimes we're captivated by the latest book, the latest idea, the latest way of saying things. Some of that even includes the latest way of presenting the gospel and, and in fact, perverting the gospel as the gospel is added to. Instead of being a simple gospel, now what's added to the gospel are all these additional words and phrases that, in fact, are perverting what was clear and true to begin with. And very often, it's just a way of subtly introducing some element of works into the purity of the gospel message. Now he moves on to verse 6, which is clearly a continuation. This is love. That we walk according to his commandments. He just got done saying, I am excited, I'm pleading with you that you, in walking in truth, would see that walking in truth involves loving one another, the commandment that we had from the very beginning. But this is love. Now I'm going to give you a little bit more detail about what this looks like. That we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. We'll try to move through this fairly quickly, but this is love that we walk according to his commandments. Now, having reminded his readers that we all are to love one another, John discusses love's expression. Now, we're talking about love's expression from the divine perspective especially. See, walking according to his commands involves living in a consistent manner having a manner of living that is directed by God's Spirit. Now remember, when God's Spirit is directing in our lives, God's Spirit is never leading us in any way that is contrary to God's will, His Word, His plan, and His purpose for our lives. So never pretend or convince yourself or deceive yourself into thinking that you're walking by means of God's Spirit or you're walking in fellowship when at the same time you have thinking that represents the world's way of thinking. You have thinking that represents self-centered, me-first kind of thinking. That's the influence of the sin nature. That's not the influence of God's Spirit working inside of you. God's Spirit always directs our lives in ways that are consistent with His truth. Now, walking in truth involves walking in a way that would be consistent with what God has said about the first commandment, which is to 
love one another or love others as ourselves. So when we see that, there's this idea of walking is living in a manner that's consistent with God's truth in this context, God's expression of love. So one's love for God is expressed through heeding God's instructions is a way that you could phrase this. Now, what instruction is in mind here? Do you really love somebody who you won't listen to? So that's where it starts with. Do I love the Lord himself if I won't listen to his instructions in my life? And I won't recognize that he knows better than I do. And that's what Jesus is talking about in John fourteen fifteen when he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. One's love for God, again, is expressed through heeding God's instructions. That's a reflection of how much you trust him, how much you're convinced that he knows best, that he's on your side, that he loves you. And as you respond to his love, it involves listening to what God says is true. Now, in the Bible, it's impossible to separate loving other believers from abiding in Christ. This is all a picture, really, of staying close to him. Christ is himself the source of love. So as I abide in him, then I'm naturally going to love others because he is the ultimate one who loves others. He's the one who cared so much about others that he died in their place. He's the one who's defined by his love. So if I could walk you through this, it would sound like this. Your recognition of who God is and how much he loves you should impact your thinking and cause you to trust and depend on him. The result of which will be a spirit-led a spirit-enabled and a spirit-directed manner of living. Christians often attempt to separate the works from the source, and they think they could do nice, kind, and loving things even apart from present fellowship with and dependence on Christ. This is not the case. As the love of Christ can only flow forth from the one who is abiding in Christ. So when you talk about walking according to his commandments, living according to his commandments, this is the idea that it would be a byproduct of living in intimacy with him. And as he then directs in my life, then I'd be walking in a way where my manner of living is consistent with who he is. And he is love. That love is expressed towards others. Now this next phrase in this is, this is the commandment that you should walk in it. So you have, it starts out with, as you have heard from the beginning, this is the commandment. Now, this is a repeat of verse 5. It's clearly linked to this singular commandment to love one another that is the focus. That is the focus of verse 5 that continues to be the focus here of the commandment that we're being instructed to walk in. And we've heard that from the beginning. Again, this is nothing new. Now, you should walk in it. It summarizes living in love towards fellow believers. Now, others have taken other approaches to this word it, that it could mean something besides the previous commandment to love one another? I don't see that. Love has been the primary subject of these sentences. You see that in Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. You see that in Romans 14.15, yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, this is talking about Christian liberty, you are no longer walking in love. If you're acting in a way that's grieving your brother, then you're not putting his well-being before your own. But this concept of walking in love, this is a central theme to the Word of God, especially the New Testament, but especially as it relates to Christ having repeatedly instructed them to love one another. So then walking in love is the manifestation of that love for one another. Now, one of the things that you see here is you should walk in it. 
you should walk in love toward your fellow believers. This is the commandment that you should walk in it. There's, again, it's not guaranteed. As you have your focus oriented on your relationship with him and fellowship with him, the result follows. You're not result-oriented. You're not focused on walking in love. You're focused on him. And as you focus on him, this is true in your life. Now, you especially need to remember that when you consider that loving unlovable people is difficult. Think about yourself and how hard, how hard you are to love at times. No, I mean, actually think about that. You're hard to love at times. Now, isn't it true then that there's others in your life that are difficult to love at times? Yeah, in our flesh, from a human perspective, yes. So if people are unlovable and unlovely, frankly, more, than, more times than not, people are kind of difficult, hard-headed, stubborn, unforgiving, unkind, selfish, self-centered. Are any of those things the things that are easy to love? No. So what is this going to require? If it's unnatural, it's going to require supernatural assistance. That's something that can't be lost in any of this. Thankfully, God has supernatural power, and he's living inside of you. So when he's living inside of you, that's how he could love you to begin with, is that he could specialize in loving the unlovely. But in addition to loving the unlovely first, because he's loving you, he also gives you the capacity to love the unlovely and to demonstrate that love through action in your life, through thinking, through words, through a manner of living taken as a whole. Now, if living in truth is characterized by living in love, what does that look like? And I want to end with this. Well, it starts by allowing God to produce through His Spirit His manner of love in you. That's what having walking in love looks like. You should walk in it if we take it as being love. You should walk in love just like you should walk in the truth. But I'm not going to walk in love unless I have His manner of love in me. It starts by allowing him to work through me. I can't have his sacrificial and selfless kind of love unless it's him that's producing it if it's supernatural to begin with. I hope you get that. I hope you're not listening to this and saying, man, I got I to gotta focus more on living in love. No, you have to focus more on him and drawing nearer to him so that his love can be produced in you. Now, that kind of selfless and sacrificial love takes an infinite number of specific forms. So in terms of what does it look like, there's an infinite number of ways that selfless and sacrificial love can play itself out. It can involve some of these things. You can love like God loves by forgiving because he forgave you first. By treating people equally and fairly, it says God is not a respecter of persons. We have a way of making clicks even in this church where we are more attracted to certain people than others, where we include certain people but not others. We don't even necessarily do it consciously, but that's the byproduct. Is we always go up to the people that we know, share our hobbies, share our hobby horses, that's more likely, that they love to chew the fat about the same thing as us. And so we naturally seek them out. But ask yourself as you look around, when was the last time I talked to so-and-so or so-and-so? Do I even know that person? And if you don't, again, don't mechanically pump this out in your flesh, but ask yourself, would the Spirit of God want to use me to include that person into this greater family dynamic that we have as a local church? If you're a new person here, don't feel like 
you're being, even though you may be being ignored, uh, even though you, maybe people aren't being as accepting and gracious as they could be, give it time and then also ask yourself, how could I reach out to people? How could I be brave? How could I walk up to somebody and introduce myself to them? Instead of waiting for them to minister to me, how can I just right away from the first days that I'm even here as a part of this church, how can I invest in them and minister to them? How could God use me in their lives? And if both, if everybody's thinking that way, there's nobody who will end up getting left out on that. So treating people equally and fairly. How about accepting people, same thing. Here's a novel one, by listening. Some of you keep praying for me about that. My wife's trying her best to remind me that you need to listen. You can't just always be talking. You got to listen. And that's a reflection of love. One of the ways love manifests itself is by listening to other people. I mean, the problem with preachers is that they have a habit of preaching. And so a lot of times I end up having to end conversations by apologizing for preaching at people. But listening, how about visiting people, communicating with people, lifting up, helping, giving, serving? How about refusing to judge people? God can do that. You can make judgments. You can have judgments about what's right and what's wrong, but you don't need to judge people. You need to be gracious and compassionate with people. You see, God's kind of love is always demonstrated in practical and tangible ways, and that's something to take away from this exhortation to live in truth and to live in love. Living in truth and living in love. See, living in truth means living in conformity with God's direction for your life. Living in conformity with God's direction for your life involves living in love. It's a circular argument. As I live in truth, then I'm going to live in conformity with his direction. His direction always involves living in love because he isn't separated when it comes to these things. To live in truth is to live in love because God is both truth and love. They both define his character. And surely John was remembering the upper room teaching of Jesus that love was the primary way the world would recognize his disciples when he continues to, throughout his gospel and throughout his letters, his epistles, remind the believers of the importance of loving one another. It's a way of showing Jesus to other people. So John stresses love as the most basic ingredient of Christianity. And frankly, this living in love, living in truth, these should be the calling cards of every believer, and may it be true of our lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that you have reminded us about how we need to stay connected to you, that we need to have our focus be on you so that your way or your manner of living could be manifest in our lives. Two examples of which would be living in truth and living in love. Pray that those would be the things that we seek after. We'd seek after you, and then we would seek after the way you want to make changes in and through us. Pray that we could be a family of believers whose lives are characterized by your truth and your love. In Jesus' name, amen.